Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, as I've been looking at our stories today, we are going to focus on nations that are talked about in Bible prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet records a night vision that God gave him concerning four world empires, symbolized as four beasts. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. The four empires are the same as Nebuchadnezzar, what he saw in his dream in Daniel chapter 2. Although in that dream, they are pictured as various metals in a statue. And this is something that's all about Bible prophecy. This is listing the times of the Gentiles. Daniel's vision assures us that the world empires have a certain amount of authority for a certain length of time, but they will all pass away and the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever. That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. Well, Jimmy, as you look at the scriptures, it lays it out clearly for us, and it puts those four world empires into perspective. And Jimmy, that's what we do here. We look at uh, what's taking place in the world today. We look at the nations of the world as they are currently constituted. We see them in the Bible as well, and they all have roles to play in God's future plan for the world. Yes, and we'll be focusing on Iran, Russia, Ukraine, Sudan. We'll be focusing on Israel, one of the very important nations that we always focus on with David Dolan. We'll be talking about China with Colonel Bob McGinnis. So all of these nations are involved in Bible prophecy. So we need to get started, Rick. Let's go to our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, and find out where we are right now. That's right, Jimmy. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's an author. He's an analyst. He joins us to talk about geopolitical affairs. You can find out more about Ken and sign up for his newsletter by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we've got quite a few stories vying for our lead story this week. So much going on around the world. But we'll start in Iran. And experts are saying now that Iran has enough to develop multiple nuclear devices. That's right, Rick, and this is a very serious escalation in Iran's nuclear weapons program. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA in Vienna, they're supposed to be the nuclear watchdog, and and recently they have actually been coming out and telling us more about what Iran is doing. They have found 83% enriched uranium that is virtually weapons grade. They have said Iran now has enough material to make four warheads if they choose to enrich it a little bit further. The Israeli defense minister uh, said this week, Yoav Gallant, he said in Greece and also in Israel that they have enough for five nuclear warheads. This is a very, very serious escalation. And to enrich from 20 or 60 percent, depending on where they are, uh, is really not that big a deal. The biggest time consuming factor in enriching uranium is getting to the original three or five percent to use in a nuclear power reactor. But the higher you go, it decreases exponentially. So they are literally 10 to 12 days away from a nuclear weapon. Okay, and certainly concerning developments, and expressly so, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, addressed a group of U.S. lawmakers to try to show the danger that we are facing. 
That's right. And I think this also shows the concern that uh, in particular Republicans in Congress, but not only Republicans, have over Iran's nuclear weapons program and the failure of the Biden government to do anything about it. So uh, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, addressed the Knesset this week, and he reaffirmed, of course, America's wholehearted support for the state of Israel and its defense. And then, as you mentioned, Prime Minister Netanyahu met on Thursday with a bipartisan congressional delegation led by Michael Turner, who's head of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Now, that's significant. It wasn't the Foreign Affairs Committee or National Defense Committees. It was the Intelligence Committee. So they are sharing information on what the United States and Israel have gleaned through their intelligence services on Iran's nuclear weapons programs. And I can tell you just from the front end, Rick, we know the big picture is what I mentioned up front, five nuclear warheads just a week, two weeks away. And that is a big deal. Well, Ken, if that was not serious enough, we continue to look at it and we get an idea of how Iran is thinking by the, the way they are operating in the world today. And you have an article on AmericanThinker.com, an article that you wrote talking about how our weakness is inviting Iranian attacks on shipping in the Gulf. Uh, there were two uh, tankers that have been captured recently in acts of piracy by the Iranian regime as they were going through the Strait of Hormuz. The first one had been chartered by Chevron, was bringing oil from Kuwait to Houston. Uh, now, this is extraordinary. We are now importing oil from Kuwait. We weren't doing that three years ago under President Trump because we have to export oil to Europe and other places to make up for the losses in Russian oil. But that was the first one taken. And then then the second one, which was announced on Wednesday, uh, was a ship that was actually not carrying oil, but it was chartered in Panama. And why is that important? Because the Panamanians just recently, at the request of the United States, have deflagged 136 Iranian vessels. What the Iranians are doing with their oil tankers is shifting them from one country to another. So they'll go to the Marshall Islands, they'll go to Bananu, they'll go here, they'll go there. And so recently they've been using Panama and the US Treasury Department has been really pushing the Panamanians to take action on this. And in January they did. So they deflagged 136 Iranian vessels. So Iran then captures one of these. It's clearly a swipe at the US. It's also aimed very clearly at the Panamanians, but it shows U.S. weakness. We have done nothing. Uh, as I mentioned in this article in The American Thinker, during the Reagan administration and even during George W. Bush or Trump, we would have sailed a U.S. aircraft carrier through the Strait of Hormuz to get the Iranians' attention. We, during the Reagan administration, we would sail two. Today, we only have 11 carriers left out of 16 battle groups when we had a 600-ship Navy. And out of those 11, get this, Rick, there are only two of them that are actively deployed. Eight uh, are sitting in home port or being refurbished. And the ninth, the USS Ronald Reagan, is idling off the coast of Japan in what's called restricted availability. We do not have the naval forces to stand up to Iran. So the Iranians are just doing whatever they wish. Well, Ken, you reported on that first tanker last week. Now this is a second one. Obviously an escalation. It feels like Iran is kind of throwing sand in our face and challenging us to do something about it, and we're not doing it. There could be consequences for that, couldn't there? Oh, I think so. And, and uh, you know, 
again, Reagan in 1988, he faced a similar situation when the Iranians were attacking cargo ships and oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. And in one day, the U.S. Navy sank a third of the Iranian Navy. After that, the Iranians didn't attack shipping for a long, long time. Same thing under President Trump. When Iranian-backed militias started to storm the U.S. embassy in 2019 over New Year's to 2020, uh, President Trump began by bringing up hundreds of Marines from Kuwait. And then when he understood that that was just the beginning of their assault on the embassy, that they had planned to go much, much further, he took out Qasem Soleimani when he came to lead that assault. This is the kind of thing I argue in this American thinker piece we have to do with the Iranian regime. They respect force and they understand very clearly that weakness is an invitation to attack. Of course, that situation is being watched by others around the world. And there are many other hotspots, and we're going to talk about a few more here, but there are many other hotspots that are trying to determine where the U.S. position is. And if they sense weakness, then may escalate other situations, such as Sudan. We didn't talk about Sudan last week. I did a little bit with Dave, but I'd like to get your opinion on what's taking place in Sudan and how we're going to deal with that. Well, Sudan has been a truly tragic situation. You've had, since the middle of April, you've had a war between two leaders, two military leaders, General Burnham, who would be head of government after the coup in 2021, and another general, General Dagalo, he's known as Hamedti, who runs the Rapid Support Forces. This is the guy that used to be in charge of the Janjaweed Islamist militias. He says he has put that behind him, but he's an Islamist. And they had been battling it out in the streets of Khartoum, but also using the Air Force, using heavy artillery. Hundreds of people have died in this war. You know, there's a there's an African proverb. Uh, they say when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. And the people of Khartoum have certainly been the grass getting trampled under feet of these two giants battling it out. What is the role of the rest of the world in trying to help here? I mean, this is going to create another crisis, another situation, another refugee situation. Where is the United States in all of this, Ken? Well, the United States is virtually nowhere. President Biden did issue an an executive order on Thursday imposing sanctions. He didn't say against two, but he's basically trying to prohibit ammunition deliveries to either side. But look, this is a case. It's clear the United States has lost influence. And Rick, there is a much, much bigger thing going on here. We haven't even gotten to yet. Remember, Sudan signed the Abraham Accords in January of 2021, right? They signed on to the Abraham Accords. Uh, Mnuchin, who was then Treasury Secretary, went to Khartoum. And here's the kicker. This year, in February, the Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs, Eli Cohen, went to Khartoum to negotiate a final peace treaty with General Burnham. And that seems to be the ultimate trigger here. The U.S. has really lost here. This is a giant step backward from the Abraham Accords. And for really well over three weeks here, President Biden did nothing. Remember, his foreign policy is anti-Trump. Anything Trump did, he will oppose. Abraham Accords, you haven't heard a single word about that from the White House, from the National Security Council. Admiral Kirby, who is their spokesperson this week, talking about the fighting in Khartoum and talking about the new U.S. sanctions, never once mentioned the fact that Sudan had joined the Abraham Accords. So this is a big deal. It's a big step back. And the U.S. has lost influence. 
Well, Ken, so many events taking place. We need to take a break right now. But if possible, could you stay through the break with us? You bet, Rick. It's been a busy week. Thanks, Ken. And Sudan is mentioned in Ezekiel 38.5 when it says Ethiopia. That would be Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have more with Ken. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. New reports show that Iran used earthquake relief flights to deliver weapons and military equipment to Syria, weapons that would be used to attack Israel. However, rather than sitting on defense, Israel proactively responded to these militant moves from political enemies. Samuel with Redemptive Stories says, We've seen within maybe the last month, there have been Israeli strikes into Syria, particularly at targets that they suspect are bringing weapons in from Iran under the guise of earthquake aids. So because of that, yes, it's a very convoluted, big mess that continues to be unpacked. Yet God is still on the throne and working through his church. Pray for believers in Iran, Syria, and Israel advancing the gospel, the only thing that truly changes hearts. And we'll end today with exciting news from the South Pacific. Estella Trosso with Wycliffe USA says, Church leaders came to our team and they asked for training so they could learn how to produce quality translation. The result is more translation starts in Papua New Guinea in 12 months than in the past 12 years. Wycliffe USA works alongside local believers to translate God's word. One of the people leading this initiative is a young, talented, passionate PNG woman named Yara. Yara is about 35 and she, what she brings to the table is a passion, understanding the need for having God's word. Her leadership is unusual because Papua New Guinea is a male-dominated culture. By and large, it's just difficult for women. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. This month, Slava Gospel Association is making available the free book, Much Prayer, Much Power by Peter Dynica, SGA's founder. It's a resource aimed at making your prayer life more vibrant. Get your free copy when you click on the banner ad at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with Rick. We're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, I do think that we need to continue to watch North Africa, uh, the Sudan area, when we're looking at uh, all those areas that are a part of the Islamic world. I think it's very important. We're going to find out more about that today in our legacy series, The Islamic World, on the series that Dr. Jimmy DeYoung is doing. So we'll keep an eye on that. Well, we'll continue to monitor that situation, but we'll move on to our third story of the day, which would have been the headline in most days. But if we look at it, Russia says that the Ukraine has tried to assassinate Vladimir Putin by a drone. Tell us about that. Well, Rick, this appears to be the second drone attack. We, we talked about uh, an earlier one last week where there was this 800-kilometer range drone that nobody had ever heard of before, uh, which uh, apparently faltered before reaching a military suburb of Moscow where Putin was inspecting certain facilities. Uh, it was very hazy, the information. This attack is even more obscure. We don't know what kind of drone it was, but there's been a video circulating on Twitter, again, through from Russian sources, uh, showing a pillar of smoke over the Kremlin, 
We're told it's in the vicinity of Putin's residence inside the Kremlin. The Russians are absolutely clear. They're insisting that this was a Ukrainian drone. The Ukrainians say, no, it's not. The Americans say, beware of Russian disinformation or a false flag operation. So there's a lot of speculation. There are a lot of, there's a lot of fog of war here, Rick. We don't have a lot to go on, except that the Russians seem to be much more intent in accusing Ukraine for this drone attack than they were in the one last week. Well, maybe the thinking behind that, Ken, is that they're using that as a pretext for some kind of escalation in the war against Ukraine. Is that something we should be concerned about? Uh, uh, Well, yes and no. They don't need a pretext to escalate the war. They can escalate whenever they want, however they want. It really just depends on how much artillery and how much ammo they've got and how much people they've got. And, you know, this week also, you had the head of the Wagner Group who uh, actually said publicly he criticized the Kremlin because he, he said, my troops in Bakhmut, who are on the front lines with Ukraine, are not getting the ammunition that they require. And if that continues, we're going to pull out. Well, up until now, Rick, we have been hearing that the Ukrainians have been on the verge of collapse in Bakhmut. But I guarantee you, if, if the Wagner Group pulls out their people, uh, it's going to be a big victory for Ukraine. So a lot of things going on here, a lot of different power forces. Uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, uh, is positioning himself, I think, as a potential rival to Putin. And the reason that he's still there and hasn't been subjected to the same fate of other potential Putin rivals, such as falling out of his hospital window. We've talked about these cases in recent weeks or getting hit by a car. I think it's because he controls the biggest paramilitary force. And for now, needs him. Well, Ken, events happening at a very fast pace around the world every week, a new groundbreaking story. We appreciate you keeping up with these stories and informing our listeners. Well, final question here. This weekend, news and television will be dominated by the coronation of King Charles. Now, I know that's not the event. The the monarchy in England is not what it once was. But do you have any thoughts on this event and what role it plays in modern geopolitics? Well, we're told that King Charles is uh, much more liberal than his mother was. He believes that climate change, that global warming is a great threat to humanity. He believes in green energy and all kinds of woke ideology. I can just express the hope that the British government will continue to behave towards the monarchy as it has in recent years, which is that they are a consultative organization. They're there for show. Enjoy the pageant. Let's let King Charles go home to his palaces and enjoy a um, lengthy retirement. Okay, and so many things taking place. And like I said, they're happening so quickly. If we wanted to find out more, we can go to your website. You send out a newsletter every week, Ken, don't you? Uh, I do, and you can get on the mailing list just by going to my uh, website, kentimmerman.com. It'll pop up in about five seconds. I don't sell your names, and it's, it really is just once a week. So I'm not going to fill your inbox with emails. <laughs> well, I urge our listeners to do just that. And Ken, thank you so much for what you do. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick, and God bless. Thanks, Ken. And Rick, the reason I wanted you to ask that question about the coronation is because I believe that England is a part of that revived Roman Empire that's talked about in Daniel chapter 7. Given the fact that the Antichrist emerges from the fourth beast leads us to surmise that in the end times there will be a revival of the Roman Empire featuring a coalition of 10 world leaders. 
The Antichrist will take his position of leadership at the expense of three of those leaders, and he will eventually wield global authority. A true tyrant, the Antichrist will demand worship and seek to control all the aspects of life. That's Revelation 13, 16 and 17. The little horn of Daniel 7 is the first beast of Revelation 13. Notice that the beast in Revelation also has 10 horns, and John describes it as resembling a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Revelation 13, 2. In other words, the beast of Revelation contains elements of all of Daniel's beast, like Daniel's fourth beast. John's beast speaks proudly and oppresses God's people for three and a half years. Revelation 13, 5 to 7. Well, as we keep an eye on the Jewish people, that's what helps us to understand how the things are going and the role that the Antichrist will play in Daniel chapter 9. To do that, we have longtime resident of Israel, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Happy to be with you once again, Rick. Well, Dave, there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to cover many topics today, but we'll start off with an update of a story that we talked about several weeks ago. It was the tragic, heartbreaking story of three ladies that were killed in the area of Judea and Samaria. If you could, there's an update that came on this week. Could you let us know what happened? Well, Rick, basically the IDF says they got the guys that did it, that carried out the uh, murder. It was brutal, as we talked about before, where a mother and her two young daughters, uh, in one a teenager, one just 20, were shot dead by Palestinians on the main road from Jericho up to Tiberias. I've been on it dozens of times. I'm sure you have too. And uh, the D family living down near Hebron. They say, the idea of said that they sent in explosive drones. Now, that's a first in uh, Judea and Samaria that we know of, or in the West Bank. First time that's ever happened. They have been used in Gaza. They have been used reportedly in Syria and against Iran, Iranian targets, but not in uh, the Palestinian zones, uh, Judea and Samaria. It went into the window of a certain home. It was that specific and blew up. And uh, three Palestinians were killed. They said they were members of Hamas, and uh, there were uh, people with Islamic Jihad that were there. There were several others injured. But uh, the prime minister vowed he would get the killers and says uh, that they did that on Thursday. Well, David, we know that was a very political issue and the ability of the government and, of course, the prime minister, which the government rests on to protect the people is very important. Well, let's continue on with politics here. And we look at it, even though the judicial overhaul has been put on pause, they are still having these protests and uh, they had another day of disruption, didn't they? They did on Thursday. Uh, the groups that are organizing these said they would uh, shut down a lot of the country. They tried twice to close off the Ayalon Freeway near Tel Aviv. They did close it uh, two times, but just briefly, the police came back in. And there were demonstrations all over the place. The group Brothers in Arms, it's uh, organizing these, basically anti-government Uh, Days of Disruption, they called it, uh, Equality Day, it was called. Some female mannequins were placed in a pile outside the home of Security Minister Ben Gavir uh, down near uh, Hebron, and they were covered with ketchup to look like they were bloodied, and that was a protest against the the government's uh, moves to limit female rights, according to these uh, demonstrators. There was another 
incident at another minister's home. So it goes on, but the Netanyahu government is focusing now on getting a budget passed. Uh, that's uh, supposed to happen by the end of May or the government dissolved automatically. And new threats have come up this week against it, even lasting that long. One was um, the security minister that I mentioned saying that he's, he would pull his party out of the government if there wasn't a stronger response to Palestinian rockets. Now, we had over 100 rockets fired from Gaza into southern Israel during the week, and the IDF hit 16 targets in response. But he claimed, and Ben Gavir and others said this wasn't a strong enough response. And the prime minister replied, his party did, issued a statement, the Likud, saying, look, there's certain members of the government that are in charge of security matters. There's the security cabinet, and you're not part of it. And if you don't like it, you can leave the government. So in the meantime, he's not voting with the government. Another religious party in his coalition says they will leave if uh, new law isn't passed that limits the conscription of uh, orthodox uh, young men, uh, ultra-orthodox, we would call them, Haradim, uh, that they would leave by the end of the month. So Netanyahu is dealing with uh, growing unrest within his own uh, government, and we'll just have to see where that goes. Well, David, we've still got more to talk about. If you could, could you hold through the break with us? Be glad to do it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more from David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we asked David to stay through the break. Let's continue on with the political situation in Israel. Well, David, as you look at what's taking place in Israel, both security-wise and inside of Israel, kind of the inner workings of the government, everything nowadays has to be painted in that political brushstrokes, whether you have the left, whether you have the right. Now, you mentioned that Ben Gavir is threatening to leave the government, but if he left the government, there would never be a coalition that he could join again, right? I mean, he's to the far right. Netanyahu is in the middle or middle right. I don't know how you put all this together, but he would never leave this government and try to bring it down, would he? Well, the government would technically probably survive. He has five members of his party. If he pulled them out, then it goes down to 58 
members of the Knesset supporting the government officially. Well, there's only 56 members of the opposition. So as long as the opposition doesn't have enough votes to bring down the government, it could rule as what is called a minority government. It's happened several times before, in which case, um, he, ben Gavir would just sit out the votes, wouldn't vote for the government, but wouldn't vote against it, wouldn't vote to bring it down. So it could carry on. But if other religious parties, one an ultra-Orthodox party, part of United Torah Judaism, if they leave over this other issue, the conscription issue, then uh, that would be enough to collapse the government. And if a budget is not passed by the end of the month, then it automatically is dissolved, and that's becoming more and more difficult for Netanyahu to achieve with all these internal political intrigues going on. We also heard from Axios that the congressional minority leader in the states, Hakeem Jeffries, head of, we knew this, headed a group of Democrats that met with Netanyahu last month, and it's reported now that they told him that this judicial reform move is making it very difficult for them to defend Israel in the Congress or in the public positions in the states, and Axios reported it was mostly Jewish members of that Democratic group that made this uh, plain to the prime minister. And he defended the reforms, said he wants to negotiate them. And it also came as the Israeli UN ambassador, Gilad Erdan, put out a pretty strong statement against Rashida Tlaib. Now, she's, of course, the Michigan Democrat that's a Palestinian origin. And uh, he said she's spreading anti-Semitic lies and uh, other things he, uh, he said that were pretty strong. And that came after she tweeted out that Israel is an apartheid state, and we don't have a special relationship with that. And that was in reaction to Kevin McCarthy, the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, speaking before the Knesset on Monday. He received a standing ovation, making very strong pro-Israel statements and issuing strong warnings against Iran. And she was reacting to that. And the UN ambassador said, look, I don't normally comment on internal statements from uh, American political leaders, but this has gone way beyond the pale in its anti-Semitism. So there goes the uh, <laughs> the conflict uh, politically as well. Well, David, when you look at this situation in light, and we're looking at American politicians there expressing levels of support for Israel, and of course, uh, some of them levels of condemnation for Israel. Of course, this is all within the backdrop of the fact that President Biden has not invited Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, since he became prime minister this time, has not invited him to the White House. What do you make of that? Well, and Biden made clear that that was because of uh, Netanyahu's policies and his coalition with these right-wing parties. He stated that himself. Well, McCarthy said, I'll invite you. I'll invite you. You can come and be the guest of the U.S. Congress. You can speak to us, uh, as Netanyahu has done previously. And that was under the uh, Obama administration that didn't want him there. So um, this isn't new. But again, we had very strong pro-Israel statements from Kevin McCarthy. He said it's a modern miracle, I'm quoting. 
He said that, um, again, Iran is the primary source of turmoil in the region, and we in America intend to continue to help you fight that. And he made some other very strong pro-Israel statements. So he is the Speaker of the House, of course, and uh, Rashida Tlaib is just one of the members, and she represents one of the few districts in America that is largely Muslim. Well, David, you've made a statement on this program before. Occasionally, when you talk about you don't want to get into the weeds too much in politics, and what you mean by that is these things are very confusing, and you get into the weeds, you lose the forest for the trees kind of thing. But that's what we're doing. We're just trying to explain all of these political situations are resulting in policies that are affecting uh, what takes place in the Middle East. And, of course, Dad always said the political setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. So that's why we cover these politics, correct? I know that that's your goal, and it's basically the reason I do as well. It's uh, just head knowledge otherwise, but if you if you can see the connections to the ancient prophecies, and if you can see that Israel's rebirth was a fulfillment of many prophecies, as we talked about last week, then you you see the overall picture accurately, I believe. Well, we'll continue on. And of course, that's exactly what we're doing on this program, looking at the political uh, for that very reason. And another story that came out of Israel is a surprising uh, renewal of their relationship with the European Union. And the European Union says it's going to bring peace to the region. Yes, the the, uh, ties were basically broken under a previous Netanyahu government between the EU and uh, Israel, not formal diplomatic ties, but they used to have regular meetings in Brussels or Jerusalem of top EU leaders with top Israeli officials. Those were stopped for a number of years. But uh, Foreign Minister Eli Cohen of Israel went to Brussels this week and met with the EU Foreign Minister, Yosef Borrell. Now, that is the first uh, high-level foreign minister's meeting in quite some time. And as you say, the EU minister expressed Pretty strong support for Israel. He said, we see you as a democracy. We see you uh, thriving as a country and economically. We have good ties, our countries with you, which is pretty well true for the most part. Uh, But uh, he said the usual things, you know, settlement expansion is unhelpful and, you know, don't do anything unilaterally that will um, uh, harm democracy, he said, which was an obvious reference to the judicial reform uh, debate going on. But yes, he praised the Abraham Accords. He said, we'd like to see more accords in the region and we will help you, Israel, to do that. So uh, the EU getting back into the game, as it were, uh, maybe a bit jealous of China for stepping in in recent months and creating um, some agreements, Iran and Saudi Arabia in particular. So the EU says it's back. And of course, that has prophetic implications. We know that uh, the European Union, or we know that Europe will be the center of the final world empire, we're told, in Daniel and elsewhere. So interesting to see these developments. Well, as we continue on looking at political events taking place that have prophetic implications, we'll move into the broader Middle Eastern region and talk about Iran. And they have been ramping up their relationship with Israel's neighbor to the north, Syria. And they even facilitated a visit from the Iranian president. 
Yes, President Raisi was in Damascus on Thursday and he met with uh, senior Hamas leaders and senior leaders of the Islamic Jihad uh, Palestinian group, which is their main proxy force. Hamas is number two. And um, he repeated, uh, you know, that Iran will continue to work with these Palestinian groups until Al-Quds is liberated, until the Zionist regime is destroyed. And he said, interestingly enough, uh, that the collapse of Zionism is very close. That was the statement he was quoted as making. It was a private meeting, but there were press reports about it. So uh, Raisi once again repeating Iran's uh, anti-Israel stand. And this came as the Anti-Defamation League uh, issued a report on Iran's English language television network that goes out on, on the internet, Press TV it's called, that was founded in 2007. And they noted that it's uh, repeating all the usual anti-Semitic tropes of history. The Jews control all the world banks, all the world governments. They set the agenda for everything going on. And, you know, you, you again wonder, I've mentioned this before, if they say, and they say it very strongly, that Allah is with us. Islam is the final revelation of truth. It's the final victor in the struggle against Jews and Christians. Well, if that's the case, how are the tiny Jews, 12, 15 million people on earth, running the whole earth, you know, running all the media and ruling, you know, it, it just doesn't, it's totally contradictory to what they basically believe, but they still state it all the time, say it, and they have a program running right now that has two prominent British Labour Party politicians espousing these same statements on this press TV uh, cable thing. And of course, you can pick it up because it's on the Internet all over the world. And because it's in English, it does have quite a wide audience. So uh, Iran continues its holy war. And of course, we had the statements you talked to Ken about uh, from uh, Netanyahu and Defense Minister Gallant this week that Iran is making great progress in their nuclear uh, uh, weapons program and, you know, are close to being able to build five weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, Gallant said, and uh, Netanyahu said they threaten every American city. So Iran is once uh, is definitely once again in the focus and is uh, pushing all these terror attacks we've been having the last year, too, especially via Islamic Jihad. Well, David, excellent report today, as we said, looking at the political because it sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. You see that taking place all over the Middle East and also around the world. But as we look at this, we realize that God's end time scenario is getting ready to take place, don't we? We do. And that's the reason that we can talk about it with still joy and hope in our hearts. You know, it's it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> it's coming. But the new order is not going to be for man. It's going to be from the Lord. He's going to rule and reign, and Israel will not be destroyed. It will be the chief amongst the nations in Jerusalem, the capital city of the earth. It's all there in the book. Indeed it is, David. And that's why we opened up with Daniel chapter 7 today. It fits right in perfect with what we are talking about in our key verses for this program. Rick, I'm always excited to have Colonel Bob McGinnis on the program with us because he always brings some very important information. And he's got a new book he's talking about also. Colonel Bob McGinnis joins us today. He's a, a regular guest on the program, some, somebody we're always appreciative to have on. We have him on the program today to talk about a new book that he's got out called Kings of the East, China's Plan to Eliminate America and Impose a Communist World Order. Colonel, thank you for being on the program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I want to talk about China, but before I do that, last week we had a story, and I know you're pretty up to date on this. Last week we had a story about the nuclear threat coming out of Russia. I just wanted to get your thoughts about that situation there, and what level of concern should our listeners have? Well, it depends upon how desperate Vladimir Putin becomes.、Mm-hmm. I, I know that you know, he has already you know, started to ignore his. Chief advisers and really has pulled back into his inner circle, you know, making plans and policies going forward. Arguably, his ministers and many of his people are fearful. You know, he is truly an autocratic leader, but you know, I don't think、uh, this is a surprise to your listeners. You know, to Putin, what he has done in Ukraine has become an all-or-nothing、uh, proposition. We had a response from the White House here from Mr. Biden, who. Basically said we're facing an Armageddon-like scenario with Russia, perhaps, and of course that's a reference to the last battle between good and evil before the Day of Judgment in the New Testament. So, how credible is that? Well, Mr. Putin has the largest inventory of nuclear weapons in the world, you know, arguably something in the neighborhood of six thousand eight hundred. Only about 15 to 1600 are deployable at this point, but you know it would only take a、uh, the popping of a couple of those in eastern Ukraine against Ukrainian forces to send a very clear message. Now, I think what Mr. Biden was making reference to is if if in fact this were done, that the Russians reverted to using nuclear weapons. Uh, that something would happen,、uh, it would perhaps、uh, proliferate. Now we did see from Jan Stoltenberg, who is of course you know, the NATO chief, North Atlantic Treaty Organization chief, who who said, you know, if Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine, quote, it will mean that the, a very important line has been crossed and that there would be serious consequences.、Uh, Joseph Borrell, who is the EU's foreign policy chief said much the same. He said essentially、uh, that he's not bluffing, Mr. Putin, and that this would result in the annihilation of the Russian army.、Uh, those are strong words from three different uh, you know, leaders uh, in the West against what Putin is、uh, threatening here. Now we could be in for a protracted war for some time as yet. Now it may settle down to. You know, the East being occupied by Russians and the West you know, just returning to some type of normality. But、uh, given you know what the Euro- Europeans are doing as they shiver because of the cutoff of Russian natural、mm-hmm. gas, and whether the Russians are going to settle for you know just what they've peeled off thus far,、uh, that's all up in the air. Well, you touched on it a little bit there, and I'd just like to ask you what may be a bit of a loaded question. But the the leadership of the Biden administration and then NATO, how confident are you as a military analyst of our ability to handle the situation there with Russia and Ukraine? Well, I, I think it, we should have circumvented this war、uh, a year ago,、uh, mm. and I do believe sincerely we could have, but. Yeah, because of bad foreign policy decisions、uh, on certainly our part as well as on NATO's part,、uh, this unfortunately didn't happen. I I wrote a year ago in Fox News that、uh, there was a better than fifty-fifty chance of a war in Ukraine.、Uh, obviously, I was correct.、Uh, 
Um, and then subsequently, I pointed out some of the, the, the threats, whether it was a chemical, biological, or nuclear threat, which continues to be the case. And I think as Putin becomes more desperate, that will happen. Uh, I do believe that the Biden administration had uh, plenty of chances to uh, not only uh, arm up the Ukrainians much faster than we did, we waited basically to the sound of the Russian tanks uh, roaring across their international boundary in Ukraine before we got desperately serious about coming to their aid. And that's the case with a lot of Europeans. But since that time, of course, we've poured in you know, many billions of dollars worth of arms. And you know, unquestionably, those arms have made a significant difference uh, in the outcome as to where we are today. You know, whether it's our javelins, our stingers, our HIMARS, uh, or many of the other weapons platforms that we've provided the Ukrainians, uh, those have been decisive against Russian equipment, which is less, you know, isn't nearly up to pace as to our weaponry, and uh, that has really empowered the Ukrainians. So, you know, this is all up in the air, and it will be for some time. Certainly Europe is destabilized. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, th this crisis is necessarily going to directly involve NATO at this point. Now, it could. Um, you know, Putin is desperate. His ultimatums are, are very clear. Um, and, and it's always possible that the oligarchs and the Russian people will say enough's enough and then topple this guy uh, almost in a coup-like situation. Uh, and then whether or not the Russian Federation survives, uh, survives that you know, outcome, that's to be determined. But you know, Putin's level of respect across the world has diminished mm -hmm. um, in spite of the fact that he still has uh, – you know, allies like the the Chinese communists uh, and President Xi is now into his third term, no doubt, and then others, uh, certainly North Korea, Iran, uh, many African countries, uh, a number of countries in the southern Asia uh, arena as well. So uh, the complexities of what we're facing today, based on the national security strategy that came out uh, a week ago, uh, is that we're facing you know, on one hand, a bipolar world where there's more democratic on one side and more authoritarian, autocratic on the other. And, of course, uh, the primary uh, adversary in this arena is not Russia. It's, of course, uh, President Xi and the Chinese communists. Well, in, in our many conversations that we've had on this program, both with me and with my father, you have told us that in the past. Because of the oil and the nuclear weapons in Russia, they are certainly something to worry about, and they are certainly a player on the world stage. But uh, the most dangerous threat to the world today is China, and that's the basis, basically, of your new book, Kings of the East, China's plan to eliminate America and impose a communist world order. Can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of the book, especially against the backdrop of President Xi Jinping kicking off this Communist Party Congress? And if I understand this right, he's going to become basically the leader for life, isn't he? That's right. And, you know, let me begin with the final part of Kings of the East, and that is, you know, is China in biblical prophecy? And I'd argue that it probably is. Uh, and I go into some detail as to uh, which 
scriptures, whether it's Revelation 9, Revelation 16, Mm -hmm. uh, and elsewhere, that there are either direct or indirect references that can be interpreted as um, the end times would involve these kings of the East, and of course it comes out of the the history of 15 dynasties and the contemporary Chinese communist. The Chinese communist took became a reality in 1921 following the, the Leninist uh, example uh, out of the Russian Revolution of 1917. Uh, and of course, uh, by 26, in 1926, uh, they were really uh, engaged in the civil war against uh, the Republic of China, which were led by the Kuomintang. And so there was a, a civil war off and on until 37 when the Japanese invaded. And that, at that point, all the Chinese collaborated against the Japanese until they were defeated in 45. And then, of course, the civil war renewed until 49 when the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan, where they you know, established a government of their own. And, of course, the communists went to Peking or Beijing, what it became, and established the People's Republic of China. Now, here recently, uh, we have seen the resurgence of Leninism and Marxism as really the dominant ideology for decades. Uh, We didn't see that in uh, communist China. We saw kind of a weakened totalitarian regime giving encouragement to entrepreneurs and to the economy. And so there was a great deal of corruption that ripped through the Communist Party during the 90s and the early 2000s. But the elite of the Communist Party found this obscure leader by the name of Xi Jinping and brought him to the fold. And he's a real ideologue. And here at the present time, we're experiencing the 20th Communist Party Congress, which will from all appearances, make President Xi very similar in power to that of Mao Zedong, the most Hmm. powerful of the past presidents and chairman of the uh, Communist Party. So Xi, as he gets this power, will coalesce around promoting his ideology, which of course is Lenin's Marxism, and that tells us a lot about how he views economic issues, social issues, ideological issues, as well as military issues. And so, you know, the speculation at this point is that President Xi, who is 69 years old right now, um, will probably, in wanting to leave his legacy, will accelerate the scenario to retake Taiwan. Taiwan has been a province of China since the about 1880, and back and forth in Japanese hands and Chinese hands, and it was in 1950 under uh, President Truman that the United States you know, formally recognized Taiwan and the Kuomintang there and established a bilateral treaty uh, for defense purposes, which we subsequently abandoned thanks to Jimmy Carter in 1979. And so back and forth through history, uh, we have seen the Chinese communists have come to dominate that part of the world. And given our weakened military condition, based upon neglect by the current administration and by the acceleration of the communist Chinese military, which is the largest and 
could soon be the most powerful in the world, I would say, by the mid part of next decade. Uh, and given their economic prowess, these are ingredients that the Adolf Hitler of the World War II era, uh, the Japanese Empire, never had. So this is a serious scenario that we're facing. I, I know this administration under President Biden recognizes that based upon the words they've written in their various strategies, but I'm not sure that the American people quite appreciate how, how serious what we're confronting is. And that's why I wrote Kings of the East. You know, I want Americans to understand a bit of history. Very few of us ever studied Chinese history, uh, much less what's going on today and understand the geopolitics you need that. You really do need to understand why China is an end times player and what we're seeing played out before us may in fact be a precursor to those end times. Well, that's true. Well, the book is Kings of the East, China's Plan to Eliminate America and Impose a Communist World Order. It's available at Amazon, at Target, at Walmart, at Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, you can get this book. I encourage you to read it. It's by Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis. Well, Colonel, I know that you're a born-again believer, and I know that you look at these current events in the light of Bible prophecy like we do here, and we know that God has given us his prophetic word. His plan is going to be fulfilled, and he is still in control, isn't he? Well, he is. And, you know, I don't understand necessarily uh, how all the pieces come to uh, fruition. Uh, I do know at the end of the book, there's total hope for the believer. But time, I think, is reasonably short. And, you know, it's incumbent upon the believers to, you know, tell others about the promises of Christ. And through God's grace and through, you know, believing uh, personally in Jesus Christ, accepting his sacrifice on the cross, that we are supposed to be about his business. And his business is everything that we do in our life has to be accountable to him. And so I would encourage people, don't be distraught. Be wise and go forth and declare the truth. And at the same time, be willing to talk about these issues that are you know, really troubling many Americans and, quite frankly, people across the world. Well, thank you so much for that, Colonel Bob McGinnis, and that is the hope that we have, and that's why we do what we do here at Prophecy Today, and I, and that was just such a great summation of the whole issue here. Well, we appreciate you coming on the program, educating our listeners. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great day, and thank you very much. Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis, a China watcher, a man that works in the Pentagon and the NOB. Uh, he, he really is. A real asset to our team here at Prophecy Today Weekend. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung speaking on Islam right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, on our website, there are so many resources. Well, we have a few resources where people can continue studying God's Word and understanding Bible prophecy a little bit better. We do, Jimmy, and we've got many different types of materials. We've got DVDs who, for those who like to learn visually. We've got books. We've got uh, digital books because that's uh, the new the new way to study. And we also have a CD series or audio series where you can listen, maybe even in the car if that's something you want to do. So go to our website, prophecytoday.com. If you uh, go there, we can help you 
to continue and at least further your study in Bible prophecy. And these are good resources to help along the way. In today's Legacy Series, we are going to learn some very important information about Islam, which is the world's largest and fastest growing religion. This is the second in our series on Islam. And as we study, you might find that the Bible reveals some very different things that you've been taught in the past. For example, Abraham is not the father of the Arab world. Ishmael, Abraham's first son, is not the father of the Arab world either. That is why we'll learn. That is what we'll learn as we study God's word today, which begins which we will begin our study by looking at Genesis chapter 16. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Many other facets of Islam that we could talk about when I take the time to do that. But I want to show you how it came into existence. Take your Bible and go with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis chapter 16. The book of Genesis chapter 16. In chapter 16, we see the birth of the first son of Abraham. We understand what happened. His wife was barren. She was not able to have children. So she decided that uh, she would assist the Lord in being able to give Abraham a son. So his heritage can continue on in the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. The Abrahamic covenant has been given to Abraham and that he would establish a nation. He would be given a piece of real estate. By the way, it's interesting to note that piece of real estate. It talks about it in uh, chapter 15. That's one passage of 38 passages of scripture that deal with the true borders, the biblical borders of the nation of Israel in the end times. What they have today is only 10% of what God has promised to give them. Uh, What they have in the future that they will receive during the millennial kingdom will be 10 times, of course, what they have. If you look at all 38 passages, and we'll not take time to do that, but a compilation would give us this bit of information. The borders of Israel actually start at the Nile River in Egypt. They continue north through the Sinai, all the way up the Mediterranean coast, taking in all of Israel, all of Lebanon to the Euphrates River. They then start going northeast down the Euphrates River, taking in all of Syria, all of Jordan, three quarters of Iraq, all of Kuwait, and three quarters of Saudi Arabia. Arabia and then come back around to the Nile River. But that's what God has promised to give the Jewish people. Did you hear what I said? Half of Egypt, all of Israel, all of Lebanon, all of Syria, all of Jordan, three quarters of Iraq, all of Kuwait, three quarters of Saudi Arabia. Now, maybe you get an understanding of what the problem is. Because those Islamic people know exactly what God has promised to give the Jewish people. Hafez al-Assad, the former president of Syria, father of the present president Bashar Assad, Hafez al-Assad said, the problem in the Middle East is that these Jews believe the Bible. And they believe that God has given them all of this land. And that is exactly right. Well, that's the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. 16th chapter of the book of Genesis, there's going to be a son, the firstborn son to Abraham. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaiden, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Now, Hagar is going to give birth to Abraham's first son. 
And now the Lord comes along and is going to meet with Hagar. Look at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord. By the way, you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord. That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Every time you see that in the scripture, it's El Shaddai, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to whomever he may be appearing to. He appears here to Hagar. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said unto her, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence comest thou? And what is your problem? And everything else. And she con- he continues to talk to her in verse 10. The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now notice the character that the Lord describes Ishmael will have. Verse 12. And he will be a wild man and his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. This is the character of Ishmael who was be to be born to Hagar, the son of Abraham. By the way, there are those that uh, believe and some that even teach that the Arab world comes from Ishmael. That is incorrect. I'm going to show you that right now. Look here in chapter 17 and verse 20. Chapter 17 and verse 20. Again, the Lord now appearing to Abraham to talk to him about Isaac, his son, in verses 15 to 19. Now in verse 20, notice what is said from the Lord to Abraham. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall be he begot, and I will make him a great nation. One. I will make him a great nation. Ishmael would be the father of one nation. We'll get to that in a moment. Let me just prove that Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Go back to chapter 10, just a moment, of the book of Genesis. Chapter 9, verse 1, God tells Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is right after the flood, 4,500 years ago. Chapter 10 is the beginning of obedience by Noah and his three sons to do what God told them to do. Now notice what it says here. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Now notice here in verse 2, I'm reading a genealogy. Don't miss reading genealogies. They have great information, biblical information for you. Look what it says here in verse 2. And the sons of Jepheth, Gomer, and Magog. Wow. Just a few moments, we're going to see those names appear again. Gober and Magog, skip a couple. Tubal and Meshach, go to the last one in verse 3. Tagarma. Remember, they were the sons of Jepheth, grandsons of Noah 4,500 years ago. Now notice what they did, verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Nations come into existence after the flood 4,500 years ago, as Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth are obedient to his command to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. 
Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma are sons, grandsons of Noah, sons of Jepheth, who will establish their families. They will teach each other a language. By the way, why do they have to do that? Because chapter 11 says at Babel there was only one language. God came down, confused the languages, thus they had to learn a new language. And at this point in time now, these boys are teaching their children these new languages. These boys then move out. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. Where do they go? Well, we know from a research in biblical uh, historic geography that Magog went north of the Caspian and Black Sea. North of the Caspian and Black Sea, that's modern-day Russia. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma went south of the Caspian and Black Sea, and that's modern-day Turkey. By the way, we were in Turkey recently doing some television, picked up an ancient Turkish map, and there the map told us in biblical times Turkey was divided into four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. And so we know from historical fact where these boys went to live, and they established a nation. This is where nations come from. They come into existence. Look at verse 6 now, as it relates to Ishmael. Verse 6, and the sons of Ham, this is the second son of Noah, Cush. Now, Cush is the Hebrew word for Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. Look at the next one, Mizoram. Mizoram is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Put. Put is the Hebrew word for Libya. Hello? Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, Libya. All Arab countries. And this is 262 years before Abraham ever comes on the scene. How do I know? I read the genealogy in chapter 12. Told you genealogies help you understand the word of God. Abraham did not father the Arab world. Neither did his son Ishmael. Ishmael, chapter 17, verse 20 of Genesis, would father one nation. I'll tell you who it is in just a moment. Let me just show you one other thing here. In verse uh, 8, it says, And Cush begot Nimrod. In verse 10, it says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, last part of verse 10, in the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar, that's Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, that's the two rivers, two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that's modern-day Iraq. That's a major Arab country of the world. So Arab countries were established early on after the flood, before Abraham ever came on the scene, before Ishmael ever came on the scene. By the way, the word Arab has been misused. Words have meanings, and we need to look at those meanings and use words properly. The media has perverted our use of words, and we need to go back to the basics and remember words have meanings. Arab means Bedouin and nomad. The word has been applied to a group of states throughout the Middle East. There's only one Bedouin nomadic country, and I'll get to it in a moment, but the rest of them have been called Arab as well. Today, that word has been perverted to mean any nation in the Middle East that speaks Arabic and is Islamic in their faith would be considered Arab. There are 23 Arab nations in our world today. And by the way, Arab nations and Islamic nations are different. For example, Turkey is not an Arab nation because they don't speak Arabic. 
They are Islamic, so they're an Islamic nation. Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Indonesia, the largest Islamic nation in the world, 202 million people. They don't speak Arabic. In India, there are 160 million Muslims, but they're not an Arab country because they don't speak Arabic. They're Islamic. There's more, there's more, almost more Muslims in India than there is in all the Arab countries of the world. It's unbelievable. Where did they come from? We'll go back to verse chapter 16 just a moment. Ishmael is going to have a family and it's going to be developed. Look here what it says in chapter 25 of the book of Genesis. Chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, a key passage of scripture dealing with what is going to happen in the life of the children of Abraham. Talks about Isaac, the last half of it, but let me start here in verse 12. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaiden, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael. And he lists the names of the sons of Ishmael. And then he said, these young men would grow up to be chiefs of tribes living in tents. We can learn much about the origins of the Arab world and, in fact, the Islamic world by studying God's Word. The word Arab and the word Islam are not found in the Bible. But the biblical information that we study in this series on Islam will take us to the truth about the origins of this, the largest, fastest-growing religion in our world today. This is a very important study because it gives us the proper worldview on Islam. This study will help us to see how Islam plays into the last day's scenario found in the Bible. Next week, we'll continue our study and see how Islam will affect the Jewish state of Israel. Please join us for that study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book. This week, we're focusing on Daniel chapter 7, those images that are listed in those verses. We'll take a break, and then we'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. New reports show that Iran used earthquake relief flights to deliver weapons and military equipment to Syria, weapons that would be used to attack Israel. However, Israel has proactively responded to these militant moves from political enemies with airstrikes into Syria. Behind the headlines, Samuel with Redemptive Story says God is still working through his church. Pray for believers in Iran, Syria, and Israel working to advance the gospel, the only thing that truly changes hearts. And exciting news from Papua New Guinea, Wycliffe USA Field Coordinator Estella Trussell says there have been more translation projects started in the past 12 months than in the past 12 years combined. She credits the acceleration to a closer partnership between Wycliffe USA and local churches. There are about 300 language groups in Papua New Guinea that have no scripture in their heart language. Prayer needs and more can be found at the full story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. 
There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And we've been doing that for the last hour and a half, Rick, as we looked at these events. We talked to Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, uh, Colonel Bob McGinnis, as we were looking at the nations that are involved in Bible prophecy. And as we do this every week, we pick out those stories that we feel are relevant and we're really not trying to sensationalize them. We are just watching as world leaders are leading the way and accomplishing what God puts in their hearts to do. That's right, Jimmy. And we we look at many different nations. We talk about the alignment of the nations on this program. And some of the issues that we talked about with Ken, we talk about what's taking place in Iran and their nuclear ambitions. We talk about Sudan and what is going on there. We talk about Russia uh, all these countries and all these places, and even with Dave, we talked about Syria and their relationship with Iran. All these nations are mentioned specifically in Bible prophecy. That's why we are looking at these nations. That's why we've picked these stories to talk about. And these nations are giving us a sign of things to come. And it's easy as you study Bible prophecy, you understand this. I started out the program today talking about Daniel chapter 7 and giving you a verse as to these four world empires that uh, will come into place, have been through history, beginning with the Babylonian Empire, going to the Medes and the Persians, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then a future empire. In Daniel chapter 7, those are all beasts. The first beast in Daniel chapter 4 is like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And that represents the Babylonian Empire. By the way, the Babylonian Empire was defeated, brought down, but the city of Babylon has never been, and it is involved in Bible prophecy in the future as well. But that first beast in Daniel chapter 7 represents the Babylonian Empire. The second beast is like a bear. It's raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And this represents the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. And as it conquered uh, Babylon, as Babylon defeated those Assyrians and then Egypt and then Medes and the Persians come in and defeat the Babylonian Empire. That third beast represents, uh, is like a leopard, it, uh, except it had four bird-like wings on its back and four heads. That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. This beast is given the authority to rule, and it represented Greece. 
how quick the Grecian Empire came across from Greece all the way across, all the way to where Alexander the Great, that Greek emperor, died in the city of Babylon at the age of 32. And then, of course, when we talk about that fourth and terrible beast, the most dreadful, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, Daniel 7, 7, that represents the Roman Empire. That Roman Empire that was in the in the past that ruled. And when we look at that fourth beast, the final beast that Daniel sees rising from the sea is the most dreadful. It's coming in. The fourth beast has ten horns. This creature represents the Roman Empire. And as it is, it's talking about the little horn, which is the Antichrist that comes out of this revived Roman Empire. So, Rick... As we're looking at these nations that we're focusing on, we understand that, and it's why we watch the nations that we watch. It is, Jimmy, and that just lays it out for us. And as we, and, and of course, Daniel is one of the main books of the Bible when you're looking at studying Bible prophecy along with Ezekiel and Revelation. But uh, when you look at that, we talk about the revived Roman Empire. As we go into the future, if you look at that, we are talking today about the European Union, which may not be the revived Roman Empire, but at least it's the infrastructure or could be the infrastructure for that to take place in the future. And Jimmy, they were talking this week about bringing peace to the Middle East. Yes. I mean, it's it's almost as if we're watching Bible prophecy unfold. And I know in the past, uh, prophecy teachers from the past, you know, the greats that we have covered, we've told their story on this program. Charles Ryrie, Dr. John Walvard, uh, the other great Bible teachers, Dwight Pentecost, you know, um, as they taught, they didn't have the advantage of where we are today, obviously. They've passed. I mean, they have a better advantage now. But as you look at it today, uh, we clearly see the nations that are involved. They're coming and they're moving in place. And it's just interesting. As we watch this, we can understand why the world is acting as it is. And I like what David said in, in his answer that understanding this information really does help us to know how we should be living at this point. It certainly does, Jimmy. I forget one of the past guests we've had, maybe it was Dr. Paul Weaver, talked about the gift of Bible prophecy. We've been given this gift. And of course, it's in the scripture. The, the whole, All of scriptures is a gift to us. It's God's instructions for us right now. But Bible prophecy is a gift to give us assurance of what's going to take place in the future, Jimmy. Well, as we take all of this information and we put all of this information together, we see what's going on. What, Jimmy, are we to do with this knowledge? As you look at it, we clearly, it does motivate us to uh, understand the times in which we're living. It does help us to and motivate us again to understand the urgency of the hour, to tell others about God's plan of redemption for mankind. I say that often on this program. But you know, Rick, a lot of churches that I go to, they don't even have an altar call or give an invitation at the end of their services anymore. And it's just interesting. I think, uh, you know, we're not talking about the way to get to heaven, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And understanding that, and by a person, 
believing that Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's the only way that they're going to get to heaven. That's the gospel message. And uh, I like how you always bring it around to helping us to understand how to use this information, how to make it better for us so that we can understand why the world is acting as it is in these, the last days, the end times. Thanks, Rick. We'll join again together next week as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Looking forward to it, Jimmy. Folks, with everything that we've seen today, you can't help but see that the rapture of the church is not far away. Let's keep looking up until. We have a DVD that we would like to offer. It's called Ready to Rebuild Revisited. It's the revisiting of our very first video, Ready to Rebuild, 20 years later, looking at what's been done to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem by the Jewish people, the Temple Institute, and all those that are interested in the temple being rebuilt. So if you would like to get that DVD for a gift of any amount, we will gladly send that to you. Just call our ministry at 423-825-6247 and ask for the special offer and that you have a gift that you would like to give Prophecy Today. (laughs) 